Hello, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Amode Lele, and today I'll be talking to David McMahon, the author of The Making of Buddhist Modernism. This is a new book that's been attracting some buzz in Buddhist studies circles lately because it talks about a phenomenon that's really quite central to studying Buddhism of just about any kind. That is... Hello, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Amode Lele, and today I'll be talking to David McMahon, the author of The Making of Buddhist Modernism. This is a new book that's been attracting some buzz in Buddhist studies circles lately because it talks about a phenomenon that's really quite central to studying Buddhism of just about any kind. That is, modernist Buddhism, or Buddhist modernism, the ways in which Buddhism has changed in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries to the points that we're often not even aware of them. I've referred to this on my blog as Yavanayana Buddhism. Uh, Buddhist modernism is David McMahon's term, and I think it's a good term. For a Buddhism that involves less monasticism, less chanting, less supernaturalism, more meditation, more everyday ethical conduct, and more political activism. For a lot of practitioners of Buddhism, Buddhist modernism is fairly invisible. They will be practicing Buddhist modernism without really knowing it. Their Buddhism is going to be shaped by these modernist movements without them really being aware that there are these great differences between what they're doing and what most Buddhists have done throughout the history of the tradition. On the other hand, for scholars of Buddhism, talking about Buddhist modernism has been something of a commonplace in a way that often dismisses it and sees it as being not really Buddhist, and just is satisfied to point out how different it is from original tradition in a way that is either explicitly or implicitly dismissive, saying, that's not Buddhism, that's not real Buddhism. One of the really great things about McMahon's book is that it doesn't fall into that trap. It recognizes real valuable impulses behind Buddhist modernism, in particular, turns to a lot of theoretical thought about modernity, especially the works of Charles Taylor, as a way of thinking about Buddhist modernism as a new but real and significant movement within Buddhist tradition. Hi, David. Hello. Today we're talking to David McMahon about his new book, The Making of Buddhist Modernism. It's a book I really enjoyed. Um, I find it presents a really nicely balanced perspective on the phenomena being referred to as Buddhist modernism. They're, they're often either presented in a very sort of celebratory way that sometimes even hides the fact that they are modern developments and make them just think that they're make make it just sound like they're the way Buddhism always been. Or on the other hand, they're sort of snide scholarly dismissals that say, well, you know, that's not really Buddhism. That's just some sort of modern invention and we shouldn't take it very seriously. And I think um, David McMahon really uh, provides a, uh, balanced perspective in the book and and uh, gets both sides across very fairly and like that. So I recommend the book highly. So, David, uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I uh, started studying uh, Asian religion and philosophy, I guess, uh, when I was in high school, when I um, just sort of started to roam around some bookstores and things like that and came across, uh, oh, I can't even remember what the first things I came across was, probably D.T. Suzuki, 
And uh, there were musicians I was interested in who were interested in these kinds of things. And so I think I probably got into it uh, initially that way. And um, I studied philosophy and psychology as an undergraduate. And uh, there was also a, uh, a Zen priest who taught courses at the university and also taught some uh, uh, meditation uh, sort of as a, a non-academic activity too. So I got to know him and I, I studied with him for a while as well. And um, I realized for graduate school that to study Asian philosophy, you really went into religious studies because there mm-hmm. At least at that time, and I think that's it's pretty much still true today. There are very, very few ways of studying Asian philosophy and philosophy departments at the graduate level. I think University of Hawaii, you can do that, but I'm not sure if there are any other places right now. Yeah, I think, but, I mean, University of Texas does a yeah. sort of thing between philosophy and Asian studies, and I think Southern Illinois is trying to do something, but yeah, it's maybe Colorado State, but yeah, very, very few. Mm-hmm. So that got me into religious studies, and uh, I ended up getting my PhD from University of California at Santa Barbara, which was a really great place to study. It was sort of in transition at that time between uh, sort of the uh, comparative philosophers uh, in uh, transitioning towards more sort of religion on the ground kinds of things. So I was able to get a lot of different perspectives, uh, mm. uh, also to live for a number of years in a really nice climate too. So, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's always a plus. So, who who did you work with at Santa Barbara? I worked with a lot of different uh, and contradictory people, uh, from Ninian Smart and Gerald Larson to uh, Alain Grappard and and Bill Powell, and uh, so I learned from a lot of different people, uh, a lot of different perspectives, and maybe that's what. Uh, made me inclined towards taking the the kind of uh, attempting to take a kind of balanced perspective that you were talking about. I, I found myself as a graduate student already sort of tr- having to piece together a number of different, very contradictory perspectives on the material. And uh, I found myself not completely convinced by any one of them and, and uh, trying to, to find some kind of overlapping ground between them, I guess. Yeah, that sounds like a very helpful intellectual formation for you. Yeah. Good. Um, so tell us a bit about Buddhist modernism, the theme of your book. Well, um, you know, I guess it came out of some of my own experiences in uh, reading about Buddhism, uh, partly through academic books early on, but also through just kind of popular books that you'd find on uh, typical American bookstore shelves that often presented Buddhism as primarily about meditation, exploration of the mind, uh, presenting it as not really having any strict rules, not being dogmatic, being non-ritualistic, encouraging freedom of thought, compatible with modern science, uh, kind of almost an inner science rather than a religion. And then... um, you know, reading some ethnographies, for instance, that seem to present a very different view of Buddhism as it's practiced in actual living Buddhist communities. And then uh, eventually having the opportunity to travel around, I I spent, uh, you know, quite a number of months kind of backpacking around uh, Asia and seeing what 
Buddhists were actually doing in their in their ordinary lives and and uh, you know being a bit surprised, for instance, that not too many Buddhists actually meditated in, in sure. Asia. Yeah. And um, that none of them were really, or at least most of them were not uh, studying Nagarjuna or other <laughs> sort of complex right, right. Buddhist philosophies. And of course, that shouldn't have been a surprise. I mean, I'm sure if, a, you know, say a, a Chinese person interested in Christianity comes to America, you know, he may eventually realize that all American Christians are not studying their Augustine or, or you know, sure. really well-versed in the tradition either. But, uh, you know, it, it, it made me start to think about how my early thinking about Buddhism was very much shaped by my own cultural context and, and by interpretations that uh, I, I eventually started to find were, were very much uh, shaped not just by the attempt to present Buddhism to the West, but also very much by something that, that I think now is beyond just the West. It's a transnational uh, category and a very vague category, I admit, of right. modernity. Yeah. So that's why I, I sort of shifted from initially thinking about um, doing something on Buddhism in the West to realizing that what I was identifying as Buddhism in the West was actually already a kind of transnational phenomenon that had more to do with uh, Buddhism than the West per se, even though a lot of a lot of Buddhism. Mm. And I think was formulated in terms of Western philosophical concepts. Right. So that's what initially got me thinking about that. And I should say, too, my early work was not really in this area. I was more trained as a South Asianist. And my first book uh, from my dissertation was on uh, Buddhist Mahayana in, in India. So it was more in the ancient world. And it was more deeply rooted in Sanskrit texts and, and Pali texts and things like that. So, uh, you know, to, to shift the, over to Buddhism and modernity was a little bit of a, a leap. But I, I found that even in studying ancient texts, it was inevitable that you ran up against this issue of modern versus ancient, uh, Western versus Asian. Uh, in other words, I couldn't avoid thinking reflexively about my own position as a person rooted in a particular culture and in a particular time and how I was uh, possibly bringing my own interpretations to bear on the, on the literature. So that sort of was another direction that, that spun me into the study of Buddhist modernism. And so in, in some ways, this project also comes out of, of your previous one, realizing that in, in some ways, you know, perhaps seemingly strangely at first, you need to understand the modern tradition in order to understand the ancient, not just vice versa. Right. I think, uh, you know, and this is nothing new to people who have done graduate work in, in uh, religious studies, but you can't just write out your own position. You know, when, even when you're studying something very ancient and really trying to look at the ancient sources and trying to understand how they understood what they were doing, uh, there's an inevitable dialectic between your own position and the text that you're interpreting. And there's obviously been a lot of theoretical work done on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I found that very interesting. And, and, and uh, yeah, so that was one of the things that, that got me thinking about uh, this new project. Right. And could you maybe say then a bit more about the position that you're coming from or and the 
you know, presuppositions you bring to the study or the kind of underlying assumptions beyond just the fact of, you know, being a, a modern Westerner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I guess the first thing that uh, I had to think about when I zeroed in on, on the concept of modernity as a way of, of thinking about Buddhism uh, as its practice is, I should say, what I identify as Buddhist modernism is not just Buddhism that happens to be in the modern period, but rather um, something that emerges in conversation with what I, sort of borrowing it and adapting things a little bit from the philosopher Charles Taylor, identifies uh, as the particular discourses of modernity. Um, And I gloss them as First, scientific rationalism, uh, romanticism, and its American version, transcendentalism, and also its successors, uh, which I think take us all the way up through the countercultural period, the beat poets, and and a number of other things. Uh, Christianity, especially Protestantism, and a later one, psychology. So I think all those discourses have really been fundamental in shaping Buddhist modernism, and that what we have in the emergence of this phenomenon is certain elements, selected elements of Buddhism that rise to meet these discourses and interact with them and produce something new. And that new thing is really kind of hard to, to narrow down because uh, it's, it's vague and it has fuzzy boundaries and uh, it's hard to, sort of pick something up and say, well, is this modern and, or, or is it not? Uh, but I think th- there are certain patterns that we see in the history of this form of modernizing Buddhism in the past 150 years or so. And um, so I just I give a few extended examples of, of uh, you know, how Buddhism has interacted with and become sort of hybridized with these various discourses of scientific rationalism, romanticism, um, uh, Protestant Christianity, and psychology. Right. And, and you mentioned that there's sort of a, a, a dialectic. Um, we, we see, I think, in, in your book um, how modernity has shaped Buddhism in these ways. Do you think there's a movement in the opposite direction as well of, of Buddhism shaping the direction of modernity, even in a small way? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think there probably is uh, at this point uh, that and, – and I have a feeling it will, will uh, continue and increase because I think the modern period has been kind of good for Buddhism – because Buddhism has, and, and in a sense, Buddhist modernism has shaped itself in order to avoid certain issues that, for instance, have plagued Christianity in relation to modernity. For instance, a lot is made of the fact that Buddhism doesn't require a god. And, you know, the existence of God has been uh, a big uh, you know, it, it's been an issue in Christianity in its relation to thinking about its uh, uh, science. 
the existence of uh, miracles, the existence of, of, you know, a particular person in history that, uh, that was a revelation of God that you either have to believe in or not believe in. Now, all those things Buddhism didn't have because it just grew up in a completely different uh, cultural milieu with different kinds of questions. But what we find in, in Buddhist modernism is that those aspects of Buddhism that don't really have a problem with some of the things that Christianity had a problem with, for instance, you know, again, uh, miracles, um, uh, evolution, um, causality, these things sort of rise to the surface and become defining aspects of Buddhism in the modernist representation. And so those have really taken off uh, and, Buddhism has become, uh, there's a kind of representation of Buddhism, which has led to, uh, in a sense, a, a new kind of Buddhism that's now transnational and is practiced by a lot of different people in a lot of different cultural contexts. And it's been pretty successful. And it's meditation-centered in contrast to a lot of other Buddhisms on the ground that, that are more ritual-centered, practice-oriented. It's sort of philosophical. Uh, it's, you know, representatives are, for instance, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, figures that, that you know, are, are have really broad appeal, uh, transnational appeal. And um, I think, you know, the way that Buddhism that Buddhist modernism has been constructed over the last 150 or so years has been friendly to that wide reception among a certain group of people. And so that group of people are also, they tend to be, you know, somewhat uh, of the elite classes of the educated classes of people who have access to, uh, publishing and, and, uh, internet and, and things like that. And so it's really gone global in a way that, uh, that it couldn't have even 150 years ago. So in that sense, I think it has started to seep into not just Western culture, but a lot of different cultures around the world, South America. And, uh, you know, it's, it's started to seep back into Asian cultures in a different way now that it's gotten sort of reconstituted in this uh, Western and, and global context. So in that sense, I think there has, there is starting to be at least a, uh, a reverse movement. Everybody kind of knows who the Dalai Lama is. Everybody has a vague idea of what his ideas are. And uh, we'll see. We'll see uh, just how powerful that becomes over the next few decades. Right. And you, you mentioned Christianity and uh, sort of Buddhism maybe in some respects thriving because it's not Christianity and lacks some of the things that people have found problematic about Christianity. But also in the book, you do talk about at least a little bit about similar movements in Christianity. You mentioned Rudolf Bultmann as, mm -hmm. as, as someone who sort of tried to demythologize Christianity. And something that's kind of been in my head as I was reading the book and, and thinking about it was, you know, is, is this is the kind of analysis that you do in the book, do you think it would be something applicable to modernism in, in other traditions, whether Christianity or even, you know, Islam or Confucianism? Could you study them in the same framework? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it, this is something that is not unique to Buddhism, uh, Christianity, particularly in uh, Protestantism, but also in Catholicism, have, have had modernist movements uh, ever since the 19th century. And in in Protestant Christianity, for instance, a lot of theologians, late 19th century theologians and early 20th century talked about uh, sort of shifting away from some of the the uh, miracles and, and supernatural doctrines towards experience. And of course, that sounds very familiar to anybody familiar with, with modern iterations of Buddhism. You know, it's very experience-oriented. But in fact, some of that emphasis on experience comes from uh, the Western side as well. Uh, the Protestant emphasis on personal experience, uh, philosophical emphasis on personal experience, William James, for instance. Um, so there's a whole discourse of experience that meets Buddhism and, and uh, you know, again, produces something kind of new. Um, also, you, you mentioned Rudolf Boltmann, uh, and he was a kind of quintessential modernizer of uh, Christianity. And his program, and I use this term demythologization, I'm not completely satisfied with it really because mm. uh, it kind of implies that you can take all the mythology out of out of something and left you're left with something that's just is what it is and, and is based on fact. And I don't really buy that. Okay. So end of my section on demythologization, I'd say, well, this is actually really a, a kind of remythologization. But the gist of it is that Boltmann said essentially that, um, you know, we live in a, a kind of modern scientific era where we, and I think the we he's talking about is we academics, we educated people. I, I think he, he wasn't really taking into account other people very much or he might have come up with something different. But the we he was talking about really couldn't accept miracles and uh, a lot of the supernatural worldview that Jesus came out of and that he and his disciples seemed to, to uh, take for granted. And so his approach was, well, you know, how do we get the, what he called the existential meaning that's still valuable and still very much in the Gospels? How do we sort of translate that into modern terms in a way that doesn't do violence to the tradition, but that still just comes from the perspective that we as modern people really can't accept a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the kind of worldview that ancients took for granted. And so he, you know, for instance, talks about how we sort of demythologize the idea of heavens and hells by saying, well, these are really internal states. They're, they're you know, we, we have heaven and hell within us. And uh, we see a similar move in Buddhist modernism. I don't think it's quite as conscious. Buddhist, uh, Rudolf Bultmann really came out and said, okay, we, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be very conscious about it. We're just going to pare away the, what he thought of as mythology and, and uh, take these existential, moral, ethical truths and uh, try and make that our Christianity. Uh, Buddhism, Buddhist modernists, I think, you know, they didn't come at it quite that consciously. They just sort of presented it in this way. Uh, for instance, Chogyam Trungpa, well-known uh, uh, Tibetan teacher who became very successful and controversial in America, there's a passage I quote from him in the book where he looks at the idea of the six realms of rebirth in uh, Buddhism. You know, the the heaven realm of the gods and the realm of the 
the hungry ghosts and the hell realms and the human realm, the animal realms, and so on, all these places or orders of existence that one can be reborn as. And he says, essentially, that these, this is more a map of the mind than a map of the cosmos. Now, I, I don't know that he didn't believe in reincarnation, but it was an interesting move that, at least in presenting things to Westerners, that's what he emphasized, that this is really a map of the mind, almost implying that the rebirth part is, is optional. And, uh, you know, so, so the hungry ghost is really a kind of state of, of a psychological state. The state of animal is a state of kind of ignorance. A state of, of hatred would be corresponding to the hell realm. And this is not completely new either. There's, there are correlations between states of mind and, and orders of rebirth. But to really emphasize that as the primary meaning of these of this of this idea of the orders of rebirth, you know that that really furthers the modernization process, and uh, that's an example of how Buddhists have have reinterpreted their tradition uh, in the modern world. Do do you think then that it would be fair to say that? Buddhism could use a few more Boltmans, as meaning people who are doing this kind of reinterpretation, but are aware that that's what they're doing. Well, yeah, it's an interesting question because uh, you know, as a scholar, I don't want to uh, sort of say, well, you know, we really should be promoting modernism. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe we should say that, but I don't want to denigrate people who still live in a very traditional Buddhist worldview. Uh, and I don't want Buddhist modernism necessarily to become sort of this hegemonic force around the world. And, and, and I don't really feel like it's my job as a scholar to, to say, you know, th- this is how you should really be understanding Buddhism, because you know, some people might be quite happy uh, understanding it in more traditional ways. But I think, um, you know, being conscious about what you're doing philosophically and taking responsibility for what you are willing to embrace and what you're willing to set aside is a good thing. And, uh, you know, again, the Dalai Lama seems to engage in some of this. He's, he's a, a kind of uh, interesting figure in this respect because he really straddles uh, uh, and walks a fine line between more modern and more traditional uh, interpretations of things. You know, on the one hand, he very famously says that if uh, if science definitively disproves some aspect of Buddhist doctrine, then he's willing to set it aside. And, and yet he still seems to embrace certain things that I think most modern scientists would not embrace. He, uh, you know, uses oracle and, and uh, seems to very strongly believe in rebirth and so on. So I think really what we see in Buddhist modernism is not a, a kind of one thing where, uh, you know, all the doctrines and practices that seem at odds with a more modernist worldview are set aside, but rather there are different Buddhist cultures and different Buddhist modernisms that sort of shape themselves in various ways and combine modernist tendencies with uh, more traditionalist tendencies and uh, really sort of, you know, call into question, I guess, a, a, any kind of firm distinction between those two. So I, I think that's something we should keep in mind, that these are complex 
formations and we can't really draw a, a fine a fixed line between what's modern and what's not. Right. It's important. And so I want to maybe delve a little bit more deeply into some of the, the topics you cover in, in the book now. It's, you organize the book very much thematically. You know, some who would write about this topic might expect a sort of chronological ordering of sort of, you know, here's how it first started with colonialism and, and then proceeding so on. But you've really taken a more theoretical angle and, and, and looked at particular topics of uh, of interest in Buddhist modernism, modernism, particular sort of characteristics of modernism, mm. and um, and I think that's that's helpful. Sort of get, lets you kind of explore a bit more what Buddhist modernism actually is. Um, you know, not not just sort of how it came to be, but what it is now and what it could be. Um, and we've we've uh, talked somewhat now at some length about um, I think one of those topics of sort of science and, and mythology and, and the supernatural and, and the sort of attempt to portray a scientific Buddhism. But maybe we can talk a bit about some of the other uh, topics that you develop in, in your chapters. The one that I found really interesting was the, the one about um, mindfulness and as the affirmation of ordinary life, mm. which wasn't something I'd really thought about so much in in those terms before I, I read your book I thought your your analysis was quite interesting could you say something about what you say in that chapter about mindfulness and how it relates to affirming ordinary life yeah um, I guess I'm drawing here again from Charles Taylor's idea that uh, in the medieval period in the West you didn't really have so much the idea that that the world, the ordinary world, was something to be affirmed. It was really something ultimately, uh, from the medieval Christian point of view, to be endured and ultimately overcome uh, through, you know, uh, through going to heaven. And it wasn't until the Enlightenment, the, the European Enlightenment, that ideas of affirming sort of ordinary life, work, reproduction, labor, um, and and even nature becomes uh, more highly valued in the the Western modern context. And um, so I'm looking then at the Buddhist context, and if you look at the early writings on meditation and mindfulness, uh, what you find is that they're often fairly skeptical about the world. You, you have the, the Indian, the ancient Indian ascetic tradition that really sees the ordinary world as something that is binding, that brings you suffering. That, uh, First you, noble truth, right? All, exactly, all yeah. conditioned things are suffering. Right. So, it, it, you know, you, you really have a, a pretty pretty skeptical view of the ordinary world. Now, that starts to change even in India with the Mahayana tradition where you get uh, Nagarjuna first saying that, that the, uh, the ordinary world is not different from uh, Nirvana. Mm. And, and, and especially when you get to East Asia, 
you get uh, infusions of Taoism into Buddhism, which is uh. a much more world affirming. And so, the, you know, the or trees and plants have Buddhist nature, and uh, so you, so you start to get that process of a more world affirming Buddhism uh, before it hits the West. But when it hits the West, this world affirmation rooted in the Enlightenment is already in full swing, and. So the whole idea of mindfulness that you encounter today, I think, is really a fusion of a number of these things that I've just mentioned. Um, while mindfulness in the ancient context might have been uh, oriented more towards fostering a kind of disillusionment with the world, uh, you know, you you look at your body and you realize that it's going to decay soon, and it's you know there's no point in, in investing any kind of uh, emotional attachment to the body because it's it's all going to you know it's going to get sick, it's going to die, it's going to rot away, uh, and it's the same with everything. Whereas today, you find a lot of the the discourse on mindfulness to be about appreciation. You know, you appreciate your life, you appreciate nature, you appreciate the trees and, and all the, the nice things around you. And um, again, I don't think this is completely absent from earlier forms of Buddhism, but what I think happens is that you get new uh, forms of mindfulness in light of the fact that they start to fuse with Western orientations towards mindfulness. And one of the things that I talk about in this chapter that I think has had a really important impact is the influence of modernist literature. And here I'm using modernist in a little bit different way uh, to refer to a particular literary movement in the early 20th century. Uh, So occasionally you'll hear Buddhists talk about uh, figures like James Joyce and how they really captured something of what Buddhists were trying to capture. That is this really fine-grained attention to the flow of consciousness and ordinary life. And just, you know, you read uh, uh, Ulysses by James Joyce and you just see this really fascinating uh, moment to moment observation of consciousness, which sometimes just seems almost nonsensical as our consciousness often does. And uh, so modern Buddhists have, drawn some connections between those two things. And I think more than just explicitly talking about them, the sensibility has just developed that that's part of what literature does. And it's really that modernist movement in literature that brought that to the fore. You know, you never see anything like that in the Mahabharata or or other ancient writing. They, They would never talk about, you know, going to the bathroom or, you know, the, the texture of, of wood or, you know, the way a leaf looks falling from a tree. They just didn't really think of stories to be told in that minute detail. But all of a sudden with, with the modernist literary movement, there was this turn towards a really fine-grained analysis of experience moment by moment. And so I think that created a certain sensibility or maybe reflected a certain sensibility among Westerners. And that, I think, came together in some ways with this uh, practice of meditation and mindfulness, which is also a very fine-grained analysis of consciousness. Uh, so what I, what I argue in that chapter is that that's created, again, 
something kind of new that, that there's neither the kinds of, of mindfulness and meditation practices that have been practiced for, for centuries in Asia, uh, nor is it just a kind of Western, uh, you know, just, just a Western thing, but it's rather a fusion of the two. Right. And it seems like what you say about interdependence in the chapter on that is, is very much a parallel story of how what started off as, as something that people in the tradition were suspicious of and, and condemned became something that was affirmed. Could you yeah. say a bit more about, about interdependence and right. in light of what you've just said? Right. I mean, that interdependence is probably one of the uh, key terms that uh, Buddhists use today, again, Buddhists of this kind of modernist genre, um, I think meditation and interdependence are probably two of the key words that you'll, you'll find people using. And, and medita- uh, interdependence is often presented as, uh, I- again, in a kind of celebratory way, that the idea that we all live in this kind of wondrous web of interdependent events, uh, the, the net of Indra where everything affects everything else. And uh, it's a a worldview that, on the one hand, implies this kind of appreciation for everything, because uh, I am just this node on this big interdependent net, and and therefore I'm intimately connected to all the other things in this this net. And um, it also implies a certain ethic, it resonates with uh, ecological concerns. You know, if I mess up the environment over here, it has wide ranging effects. If I support certain practices, uh, if I buy a shirt that is made by uh, a, uh, you know, by a child slave somewhere, well, you know, my actions reverberate around the world. And that really resonates today with uh, the recent radical interconnectedness of the world. And uh, so what I do in that chapter is sort of trace this idea of interdependence from the ancient Pali literature, where again, there's a very, interdependence is affirmed, but it's it's uh, presented in a very different way. Again, the interdependence of the Pali canon is kind of bad news. You know, we, we're all enmeshed, we're all sort of locked in to samsara, uh, and the more we're kind of enmeshed in this interdependence, the more in bondage we are. So the idea is ultimately we want to escape from this web of interdependence. But again, gradually, with especially with the Mahayana tradition, Avatamsaka Sutra and others, they start to present this uh, fusing of nirvana and samsara and start to see interdependence itself as something that uh, reflects nirvana or really is itself nirvana. And so you start to develop in India certain ideas of, uh, of the world, of, of samsara, being sacred itself, being, uh, being nirvana itself, looked at from a certain angle. And then again, this hits East Asia, where uh, you, ha- you have a culture that already in some sectors at least, is sort of celebratory of nature and sees, um, sees you know, sort of a, a maps of spirituality in, in nature and uh, 
sees Buddha nature in various things of the world, trees, rocks, animals, and so on. And you have a whole chapter on nature and romanticism as well. That, yeah, that's right. And so yeah, really that's, that's the next move then. It, it hits uh, romanticism and transcendentalism. And so you know, a lot of Buddhists in late 19th, early 20th century start to see Buddhism in terms of certain categories that are established by romanticism. That is, romanticism emerges in as a critique of Enlightenment rationalism with its mechanistic view of the cosmos, and instead sees nature as a kind of living organic system, as a force permeating and animating everything, God as a primal spirit within nature rather than as some uh, a separate being. Uh, there's also an emphasis on introspection, self-examination, discerning the presence of the divine from within. And so that idea of nature, nature as a, a kind of unified organism, nature within, something, a kind of creative force within that we can access through introspection, uh, that idea starts to seep into Buddhism. D.T. Suzuki, for instance, really starts to express Zen in those categories. And um, the idea of nature that we find in, in the celebration of interdependence within Buddhism today, I think is deeply influenced by the romantic transcendentalist view of nature, which then uh, its latest expression, I think, would be deep ecology. And so this represents a kind of, again, a kind of fusion, uh, hybridization between a, a chain of, of Western thought going back at least to the 19th century, maybe even back towards uh, Neoplatonism that uh, works itself into the 20th century and gets intertwined with Buddhist ideas of, of interdependence. And I'm just as as I'm listening to you now and thinking back on the book, I'm sort of thinking about kind of a, a real sort of common theme that seems to come up in in all three of those chapters: the one on on mindfulness as ordinary life, the one on interdependence, and the one on, on nature as romanticism, which maybe is not there quite as much in the chapters on science or on meditation, um, and that is this kind of move from a sort of transcendent Buddhism to a more imminent kind of Buddhism, one that sort of takes these various terms which or th- things that people thought about in at least Pali Buddhism as something to be escaped from, which then becomes sort of tweaked and turned around and affirmed. You know, these three things of nature, interdependence, ordinary life. I mean, you know, I think interdependence is a concept they might have had at the time, nature and ordinary life. You might find something that could be translated that way, but maybe a bit more arguable. Um, but that I'm just sort of getting this sense that there that there's a sort of common movement in in these chapters that that sort of talking about um, how, you know, what, what was once something to be escaped or treated with suspicion becomes something to be affirmed and, and celebrated. Is it? Am I am I getting the right sense here? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Buddhist the the strain of Buddhism that I'm looking at here is very this worldly. Uh, you you don't find too many people uh, who are just going to say, for instance, 
you know, really what we should be doing in practicing Buddhism is just getting away from the world. Uh, the world is going to hell and we're just going to try and work on our personal salvation. Uh, that's really not in fashion right now, as far as I can see. The idea is self-transformation contributes to the transformation of the world. We're deeply invested in how the world is going. The world is in crisis right now. And so I think a, a lot of Buddhists feel that the uh, practices of self-cultivation, of mindfulness and meditation, are not just for oneself, but they're ultimately for enabling one to be more effective and uh, more compassionate and more wise in one's relationship to the world. And when you speak in those terms about about sort of engaging with the world and transforming, that sort of takes us to engaged Buddhism and, and political activism, right. which you say quite a lot about in the in the book. Um, I notice you don't actually devote a chapter to it uh, to to engaged Buddhism as as a form of of modernism or you know, political that that sort of affirmation of political activism and engagement. I'm curious why why that was did you just run out of space <laughs> yeah yeah there are a number of things that i that i would have put in probably if i would have had a, a two volume thing but yeah i guess in part um i feel like there's been a lot written on engaged buddhism and i didn't really want to just repeat what other people have said and sort of give a, a summary of it um but i wanted to show uh how a lot of the the, the general trends that I was talking about through the book did logically lead to these various forms of engaged Buddhism and more this worldly Buddhism. So I, I sort of interwove engaged Buddhism throughout a number of the chapters. Right. And, and that's, um, and I guess, I mean, I, I'm thinking about it just because it seems, you know, that's one of the most sort of quintessentially modern um, forms of Buddhism is this idea of you know Buddhists as as political activists, mm. um, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, could you know you've you've talked a lot about how these other sort of modern developments in Buddhism come out of of particular kinds of modern discourses? Is that something you also found about engaged Buddhism about sort of looking at kind of ideas of of political activism as, um, in the modern West as something that had affected Buddhism as well? Yeah, to some extent. Uh, for instance, it seems like in, engaged Buddhism is also a very diverse movement. Uh, you know, some of it is really focused on local issues and some of it is, is focused more on global things. So it's another very amorphous um, term. But I think you can see that they're adopting a lot of ideas from, uh, you know, again, that are in root, rooted in political thought of the Western Enlightenment, ideas of human universal human rights, for instance, uh, are almost taken for granted among mm -hmm. some of them work very much in a kind of um, uh, neo-Marxian uh, mode. A lot of them tend to be kind of politically on the left. And um, again, in, in a very broad sense, they seem to take for granted this idea that the world is not something that we just need to escape from, but it's something that needs to be transformed. It's, it's something that's uh, in crisis and we need to address it in some way. Right. And you, and you, I get the impression of reading those last chapters that, um, 
you you like engaged Buddhism you know, that 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 it's sort of you know of, of the various kinds of of Buddhist modernism it seems to be the one that you have the the most sort of positive evaluation of is that well, a fair characterization I, I, I do like engaged Buddhism and I uh, I, I think when we talk about uh, a very this worldly form of Buddhism you have a, a number of different possibilities that I talk about a little bit in the last chapter there one of which can be a, a kind of over-accommodation to the mainstream kind of global capitalist culture. And I think there's a danger to Buddhism in that. Uh, for instance, there's a lot of, despite what I just said, there is a lot of sort of fragments of Buddhist practice and thought that end up getting worked into uh, simply, uh, you know, ways of being more effective at doing whatever you do, whether it's making a lot of money or, uh, you know, being a good banker or, you know, any, anything. And I think that leaves behind a lot of the ethical elements of, of Buddhism and, and a lot of the sort of orientations and strips away so much that it just becomes uh, sort of, you know, meditate and be mindful, and therefore you'll, you'll be better at your job or uh, you'll be better at playing ping pong or whatever. And so I think there's a possible, the, the, this worldliness of Buddhism can become so accommodated to just the, the sort of individualistic mode of existence that a lot of people take for granted today. Or it can sort of become, it can bring the resources of this kind of combined tradition of Buddhism and Western thought to bear on some of the really crucial problems of the world today. And I would hope that it goes the latter way. I would hope that it doesn't just sort of dissolve into mainstream American culture and become another way of of you know, just kind of appreciating the mundane aspects of one's life and becoming a little more effective at doing this or that, but really bring some of the the values of compassion and uh, care for the environment and things like that to bear on 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 some of the, the issues that we all face today. You see that as a way that Buddhism can say something to Westerners that they're, they weren't just thinking already. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I hope that that these various forms of Buddhism can bring something to the table that challenges the kind of status quo, that challenges the taken-for-granted ways that we might uh, exist in, in the West, and really offers something new. If it accommodates too much, you know, it has to accommodate a little bit. It has to adapt to this very new situation, or else it just can't speak to people. But if it, if it accommodates too much, then it really can't offer anything new, any kind of challenge to the status quo. Good. Yeah, and there's, there's some things I might find to, to disagree with you with on, on, to disagree with you on on the way that you characterized the situation there. But um, you know, this, this interview is supposed to be about, uh, about you and not about me, so I won't, uh, I won't go into any of that. Um, I think uh, I, I hope we've had a chance to really explore the the ideas that you've taken up in the in the book. I think it's it's been a satisfying discussion, um, and I think we're we're uh, 
we've probably taken up a fair bit of your your time at this point, so I want to start wrapping up um, and maybe ask you what you're working on now. What's your your next project? Well, I'm uh, I'm wrapping up uh, another book. This is an edited volume with uh, a lot of different authors on Buddhism in the modern world, and it uh, has two parts. One part is on different geographical regions, just sort of a survey of, of some of the main issues in, in the history and, and current state of Buddhism in various geographical regions. And then the second part discusses some of the uh, more thematic issues, uh, Buddhism and globalization, uh, Buddhist ethics, Buddhism and popular culture, and so on. So uh, that's going to be coming out uh, probably in a few months from Routledge. And then, um, yeah, the next project, I'm, I'm not, I'm a little hazy on it at this point, but I'm, I've been looking into different ways that different Buddhist cultures around the world conceive of Buddhist meditation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm interested in pursuing a kind of cross-cultural exploration of that because I'm, I, I think that I, I see that the meanings of meditation may be very different in, in very different cultures. So, for instance, in some cultures, they believe that meditation produces a almost kind of magical power and the laity will gather around monks who are doing this, hoping that they can get some of you sort of siphon off some of this power. Mm. Whereas in the West, you know, you may learn meditation, Buddhist meditation without even realizing that that's what you're learning, you know, from your uh, psychologist or cardiologist or uh, something like that. Uh, In other Buddhist cultures to meditate really means to, to go out for three years in a cave, you know, otherwise why bother? Um, and of course that's very different from the way most Buddhists in the West would meditate. And of course it becomes complicated because it may be that the, uh, the guy who just did a a three year cave retreat might be the guy at the health center (laughs) teaching you meditation. So these things get combined again. And do you think you'll sort of focus primarily on the traditional versus modern divide, I mean, for lack of a better way of, of characterizing it there, or um, is it just as much about, say, the the differences between ways of understanding meditation? Well, I think I'll have to do some more research before thinking about how to... Uh... <laughs> how to frame it now it's sure. still in its infant stages i just got back from a, a trip to sri lanka where i was trying mm. uh get into this question a little bit and do some interviews and uh that's something a little bit new to me i have i've usually done most of my work through textual study and so i'm thinking about doing some interviews for this so oh i'll just have to see it's it's still a project in its infancy right and the other and the other project uh on Buddhism in the modern world sounds much more clearly like it's kind of an, an outgrowth of, of the book we've been discussing. Yeah. Uh, I was actually approached to put that together and, and, uh, it's, uh, designed to be something that, that calls a lot of different research. You know, one of the things that is impossible to do as a scholar is to do a kind of global, um, inventory of Buddhism because nobody has that many languages, you know, right. Buddhism is in so many different cultures and has so many different languages. So 
the idea was to to get the expertise of a number of different authors together and in mm-hmm. volume. And, yeah, we could we could use a lot more sort of comparative cross cultural work that that really draws comparisons across cultures and and um, you know isn't just sort of limited to well here's what I studied in in my village or, or my text right kind of thing. Great. So yeah, those those both sound like great projects. Um, thank you. I wanna wanna thank you for being on the show today. Really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you, Amad. Yeah. Thank you, David. Take care. Okay. You've been listening to an interview with David McMahon on the New Books Network, New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm your host, Amod Lele. Thank you for listening.